Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. An Erio's Original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we'll be speaking with guest expert John Farragher, professor of history and American studies at Yale University, specializing in Western and frontier history. He's also the author of Eternity Street, Violence and Justice in Frontier Los Angeles. And make sure to look out for his upcoming book, California, A Short History, coming out spring of 2022. Let's hear what he has to say about the Chinese massacre of 1871. Hi, Professor Farragher. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm happy to be here, Rebecca. Thank you. So could you start off by giving us a quick rundown of what Los Angeles was like pre-Gold Rush? Who inhabited the area and what was it like? Pre-Gold Rush. Okay, well, Los Angeles was founded as a, Pueblo, a Spanish Pueblo in 1781. Um, this was part of the Spanish effort to colonize Alta California. They had already established uh, settlements and mostly missions in Baja, California, but they were uh, pressed to move further north because they were fearful of the encroachment of the Russians who had uh, established otter, sea otter hunting uh, uh, traders in what we now call Alaska and were pushing south. And the British, who were uh, with, with the Hudson's Bay Company, who had also pushed across the continent and gotten to the Pacific. So the, uh, the Span- Spanish, who had just participated in the Seven Years' War on the losing side, uh, during which the British conquered 
or you know, the British invaded and, and seized Manila and Havana, Cuba, Manila and the Philippines and Havana, Cuba, uh, their most important international ports, the Spanish's most important international ports. They were scared that uh, the British or the Russians would move down and occupy all the California. So they developed this colonization plan, which briefly stated was a mission plan to send Franciscan missionaries into California, establish missions, uh, turn the native people into, convert the native people to Christians and uh, and teach them to labor at the missions so that the colony could be self-supporting. The whole idea was that native labor would support the colony. And then they would also develop pueblos for settlers. And Los Angeles was one of those. Uh, Los Angeles, uh, uh, San Jose, uh, Santa Cruz were the original pueblos. Uh, but uh, that plan aborted because the Spanish had hoped to establish an overland route from what is now basically Tucson or northern uh, uh, Sonora province across the desert to California. To do that, they had to cross at the Colorado River, which was controlled by the Kishan, sometimes called the Yuma uh, native people. Uh, they... Uh, revolted against the Spanish and closed the river crossing. And so the Spanish were never able to colonize California effectively. But the missionaries and the small population of the Pueblos uh, was all that really was of the of the colony uh, colonization attempt. By uh, the 1840s, the missions had been uh, what they call secularized, converted to private property. The native converts had been uh, forcibly converted into an agrarian labor force uh, for the rancheros. And Los Angeles was deep into the production of uh, grapes for wine. The, the major industry in Los Angeles was uh, wine production. Uh, and actually, in 1846, the governor of California, Pio Pico, uh, lived in Los Angeles. Uh, there was a lot of conflict between Los Angeles and the South and Monterey and the North, the Californios, the native, the settlers of the Spanish settlers. Uh, Mexico broke away from Spain in 1821. So California was no longer associated with Spain, but it was part of, it was a territory of Mexico. When the Chinese, uh, when Chinese immigrants begin to arrive in gold country around 1840s, how how were they received and, and what drew them out here initially? Well, they, they actually arrived in the 1850s. Uh, by 1852, when um, California conducted its first really comprehensive census, uh, the Chinese were the largest single ethnic group other than American citizens in uh, California. So they, they came in beginning about 1850, and uh, that migration accelerated through the 50s into the 60s and into the early 70s. So uh, the first uh, uh, Chinese in Los Angeles uh, arrived sometime probably during the Civil War, maybe about 1862. Uh, and uh, uh, by 1870, when the federal census is taken, uh, the Chinese population of uh, Los Angeles is officially 234. 
there probably were a lot of people missed in that. So, you know, I think a good guess is three, 350 Chinese in Los Angeles, perhaps in 1870. Now, they, they basically came in to replace native workers who had uh, who were the major labor force in Los Angeles and the surrounding countryside, but were suffering uh, greatly from epidemic disease. There was a, a big smallpox epidemic in Los Angeles during the Civil War, and uh, thousands of native people perished in that epidemic. Uh, so Los, Los Angeles, after the Civil War, was beginning to develop. The old ranchos were being divided up into farms. Uh, a railroad was built connecting downtown Los Angeles with San Pedro. Uh, so it was a kind of a the, what we call the first Los Angeles boom, in the late 1860s. And there, so there were a lot of new people moving in, uh, a lot of disruption of old ways. And the Chinese were really basically there to pick up the slack from native labor, uh, which was uh, had been decimated in the smallpox pandemic. So uh, the Chinese picked up all the adverse negative stereotype that went with um, the attitude about native people, which uh, so they came in two strikes against them. I read that Los Angeles had higher homicide rates per capita than New York City and Chicago. How violent of a city was it at that time period? Well, it, it left Chicago. And Chicago was really not much of a city at all at that time. Of course, New York was. It had a population approaching a million. Uh, uh, but the Los Angeles homicide rate was, you know, astronomically higher than New York's. Uh, you know, homicide rates are calculated usually as, as how many homicides per 100,000 people. So, you know, when you get the number that it's this number in a hundred in a population of 100,000, the rates in New York were a, a, around 30 per 100,000. Now, that 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 makes that would make New York about as violent as the most violent American cities today. Uh I don't know who the who the winner of that booby prize is this year, but it's usually places like East St. Louis or New Orleans or someplace like you know th those rates are usually around fifty per one hundred thousand. In the early eighteen fifties, Los Angeles had a rate of five hundred and sixty. Wow! So it had a rate of homicide ten times greater than the most uh, violent cities today. That rate, 560, uh, which prevailed in the early 1850s, uh, is a little bit like low-scale warfare. It, what it, a rate like that means is that every, literally everyone in the population of Los Angeles either had experienced violence as a victim, as a perpetrator, or as a bystander. There was no way to avoid it. And so, yes, Los Angeles, there was only one place in California that had a higher homicide rate, and that was the uh, Mariposa County uh, in the southern Sierras, uh, where there was an enormous amount of conflict between ethnic groups over mining claims. 
and where lynch law prevailed. But uh, other than that, Los Angeles takes the prize. Probably, I would think we don't we don't have a comprehensive list of statistics for cities in the 1850s or 60s. But from what I can garner from what we do know, I would hazard the guess that Los Angeles, if not the most violent place in the nation, was on a list of the top five. So with such high crime rates, why were they, there were only six policemen in the 1870s? <laughs> Uh, actually, uh, by, by the by, 1871, there were seven. That's oh not, wow! <laughs> and they were called the the, the the law enforcement official in Los Angeles in the 18, in 1871 was the city marshal, and uh, he had deputy marshals. He had seventy seven deputy marshals. Um, that that had just had just been raised from uh, from uh, five. A year before, and people thought, "Wow, now we're safe." Uh, <laughs> at seven, but uh, the you know violence was so pronounced right at the right at the beginning. You know, American conquest is the war of uh, the uh, Mexican American War is eighteen forty six to eighteen forty eight. Uh, the United States United States troops and the rebels from the Bear Flag Republic took possession of Los Angeles from the Californios in 1849, January 1849. I mean, I'm sorry, 1847. Uh, California became a state in 1850. And during that interregnum period between 1847 and, 18, and 1850, there was essentially no government at all. The, the Mexican government had been the, the, uh, destroyed by the war. Uh, its officials exiled. Uh, there were no authorities. There were there were uh, a small number of occupying troops, but they did not play a role as police. So uh, the violence is a product of that era, uh, of that era with very with no governance and no law enforcement. There were no courts. There were no uh, sheriffs. There were no marshals. There was nothing, and yet. It was we were in the middle of a conquest, uh, middle of a, of, a, of a conflict that uh, was extraordinarily violent, uh, and yet there was no remedy. And so, throughout California and in Los Angeles in particular, what was known as popular justice, which we would today call lynch law, was the established conventional method of trying to put a cap on violent crime. Uh, the, the the problem with uh, popular justice is that it knows no bounds. There is there is no there are no uh, guardrails on popular justice, and it easily gets out of hand. It is toxic, and but Los Angeles basically popular justice was its mother's mother's milk uh, in the late eighteen forties and the and through the eighteen fifties. And by 1850, in 1855, there's an incident in Los Angeles, uh, an incident of, in which uh, lynch law prevails over the efforts of the local judge to establish a procedure of law and order. And from 1855 until 1871, when the Chinese massacre takes place, essentially a vigilante committee, uh, the Committee of Vigilance, uh, what they called the V.C., 
basically was the predominant institution of law and order in Los Angeles. Uh, whenever, whenever people felt that violent crime was getting out of hand, there would be a series of lynchings. They would take take prisoners to jail and lynch them, not allow the courts to try them. Even in, in some cases, they broke into courts and removed the uh, the uh, accused from uh, the court and lynched them. Wow. Um, you know, so it, this became the conventional way of doing law, of doing law and order in Los Angeles. Can you tell us a little bit about the Chinese uh community that had settled in da- downtown. Uh, I know that they were about 350. Um, how were they uh, being portrayed by the local publication and why? <laughs> I think the first thing, we should say something about the community itself. Uh, it was a transient community uh-huh. of Chinese. Uh, most of these people had only been there at most a year or two. Uh, it was almost entirely male. Uh, very few Chinese women came over from China. Uh, and those who did, uh, 90% of those who did, uh, uh, when they got to California, became prostitutes. Uh, they were almost certainly the victims of human trafficking, um, kidnapped, sold into slavery by their po- impoverished families. Um, so there were a few dozen women in Los Angeles, but Nearly all of them were prostitutes. So this was not what you call a solid community, the Chinese community of Los Angeles in 1871. It was transient. It was it had more the feeling of a like a lot of California did of a kind of a, you know, uh, had the feeling of a mining camp. Uh, Nothing seemed permanent. The Chinese moved into the oldest quarter of Los Angeles uh, which uh, Anglo residents called uh, along a street called uh, Negro Alley, um, which is just uh, if, if you if you visit the plaza downtown in Los Angeles, there's an old fire station. You turn the corner from the fire station, you're on Negro Alley. Uh, there is a plaque on the street there in the sidewalk commemorating the the, the riot, the massacre. It's very hard to find and it's hard to read when you do find it. But it's there, and it would give you a it would give you a sense of you know the the, the locale. All so Chinatown developed on that east side of the plaza. Of course, there was no Union Station. Uh, it just sort of slopes down there to the river, and so there were lots of uh, shacks and old adobes and old wooden construction. And Chinatown stayed there until they uh, built Union Station and cleared Chinatown away, and. In, in open what they call New Chinatown, north of the plaza, where where you know Los Angeles's Chinatown is now, um, which was all a you know a, 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 a construction moving people out of their uh, homes and into new quarters in New Chinatown. So uh, you know the Chinese came in. They, the workers were transient. They they a lot of them came in for a few months and they would leave. Uh, so there was not much stability in the community. The Anglo community treated them like pariahs. Uh, like I said, they they picked up all the uh, the prejudice that uh, was directed at the native people because they filled their roles. They were vineyard workers and they were uh, uh, ranch workers and 
also they did their own uh, did their own particular uh, uh, had their own particular economic interests. They ran laundries. Uh, there was a Chinese cigar manufacturing establishment downtown. Uh, but the uh, the Anglo reception of the Chinese was hostile from the very beginning. Uh, and uh, the newspapers published uh, scurrilous articles uh, about the bestial Chinese, uh, about their filthy dens, uh, about opium smoking, which, by the way, many Anglos did. Uh, uh, you know, they, they, there was a lot of slumming went on. You know, because uh, uh, the, the population, uh, the white population of Los Angeles was also predominantly male. Uh, so a lot of men, uh, a lot of white men frequented uh, uh, Chinese brothels and uh, uh, patronized uh, Chinese prostitutes. A lot of them, the Chinese gambling, which was a big deal, was very popular. And Anglos, you know, uh, uh, were got, became fanatic about the numbers and, 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 and other forms of Chinese gambling. Uh, uh, but the beginning at the height of this building boom I was discussing before uh, in the late 1860s, uh, suddenly there began to be in the court record occurrences of anti-Chinese violence. Uh, from 1869 to 1871, before the massacre, there are, I, I counted 20 separate incidents of anti-Chinese uh, violence, usually unprovoked, it's just, uh, you know, an Asian person, a Chinese person being attacked on the streets. I mean, very familiar. Yeah, sadly, uh, yes. Uh, but they just, they seem to come out of nowhere in 1869 and, and, and multiply over the next two years as a, pre a prelude to the massacre itself. So the Chinese were hated. They were scorned. They were seen as dirty and corrupt. Uh, and this was not just true about Los Angeles, but California in general. I mean, 90% of all the Chinese in the country lived in California. Uh, so, but Los Angeles has the dubious uh, uh, fame, or infamy really, of being the site of the first mass violence against the Chinese. And, and speaking uh, of that, uh, could you give us a quick recap on what happened October 24th, 1871, how it all went down? It was... It was, you know, the Chinese, as they were all, almost all male, and they were uh, organized into what are known as companies. These were really benevolent associations based on residents in China. They were like low, uh, in, in the 20th century, when there were a lot of immigrants from the Midwest came to Los Angeles, you know, they would have like Iowa Day picnics and South Dakota Day picnics and uh, Nebraska picnics for all the immigrants. But this was the same kind of thing. These companies were based on the region you came from in China. So based on your region, you would join that particular company. And they they, they, they helped people out with travel money. They was a place to go and relax. But they also included uh, a lot of vice, drugs, and prostitution. And uh, the conflict began between basically Chinese brothel owners uh, who uh, were competing for the business uh, the John business, and uh, they uh, they had several incidents of violence, but the one on the twenty fourth uh, uh, ended up wounding three three Angelinos, two white men, 
uh, well, one white man, one uh, 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 Californio, and no, one white man and two Californios. Uh, the Californios survived. The white man died, and uh, because he, the, in, these people were cro- caught in the crossfire, and once a white man was shot. <laughs> by these Chinese gangsters. They were essentially gangsters. Sometimes they're called high binders. Uh, The the population downtown, the white population from that area went nuts and uh, besieged the Chinese in their quarters along Negro Alley. Uh, So that's the way it starts, that it, it... it's its explosion into a catastrophe is really a responsibility of the very bad decisions made by the small number of law enforcement officials in Los Angeles. Because instead of, instead of trying to break up, that said, first there was 20, 30, 40 men, white men, shooting into the the houses of Chinese on on Negro Alley. So what they could have done at that point was use their policing power, which was very slender, I I admit, seven deputy marshals and like a call on the county sheriff who had his his, uh, office in Los Angeles as well. He was there. He had a couple of deputies. So altogether, they could have maybe mustered 10, 12 men and, and, the, the appropriate law enforcement procedure would be to break up the crowd who's firing indiscriminately mm-hmm. into homes. <laughs> but they didn't do that. They deputized the mob. Wow. But they gave them the power of the, and the authority of law. And then it was all over. That, 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 so then, then people started coming from wow. all over, white men from all over the city. And joined the mob. So by the end of it, we've got two, three, four hundred people besieging Chinatown uh, because the uh, the law enforcement uh, that was there bungled mm. it so badly. Yeah. So at the end of the day, if if you had to pick one person or thing, um, it could be a concept that is to blame for the Chinese massacre. Uh, of 1871, then who or what would that be? I have a feeling I might know, but I would like to hear it from you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I could, to tell you the truth, I don't think I could pick one. I can give you a, because you can't really isolate a single factor. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no doubt that there was a lot of, you know, anti-Asian orientalism kind of prejudice. There's no doubt about that. Uh, there also was the uh, uh, contempt that people had for uh, those who filled that slot in the labor system, mm. the, the slot that had been formerly filled by uh, uh, Native people. Uh, the Chinese, as I said, moved into that slot. They picked up all the uh, 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 the scorn that went with that role. It was also a uh, – we're living in, a, in 1871 within uh, – 25 years of the conquest of California by the United States. Back when the United, when California was conquered by the United States, we were, they were less than a century into the era of Spanish colonization, uh, which exploited the native people. So 
an attitude of superiority, hmm. colonial superiority, and native or uh, you know sort of proletarian subservience. What I would call the legacy of conquest hmm. was the prevailing cultural ethic. So you put, and then you know there, there are other factors: the availability of guns, the uh, tradition of violence, the history of vigilantism. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a a man had been lynched in 1870, December 1870, less than a year before. The uh, he'd been taken from the jail and lynched. Uh, he was a murderer. He was a bad man, no doubt. But they didn't give him the chance to stand trial. Right. The county judge ordered a grand jury to look into who had done the deed. Everybody knew who had done it. It was an open, open and shut case. People marched to the jail. The, the leaders, were they were listed in the paper. Everybody knew, but the jury did what they all, the grand jury always did that co- and said that the lynching had been committed by people or persons unknown. Uh, when, the, uh, when the Chinese massacre began, it took all the shape of another lynching. The first man who was killed was taken up to the spot where the man had been lynched uh, 10 months before and lynched him there. Wow. And while they were there, uh, 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 a, a man, a, a businessman in, in, in Los Angeles who objected to what was going on, confronted one of the lynchers and he was told, and, and the man who's, conf- he was in front of one of the lynchers and this guy, was a member of the vigilance committee, the guy who's asking the question. He says, "Why are you doing this? This is this is this is disruptive. This is terrible." And the man turned to him, knowing who he was speaking to, and said, "We're all vigilantes now." So that tradition of vigilantism mm. uh, was, I think, the determining factor in turning what could have been, you know, a rather low-scale riot. Uh, into a cataclysm in which 18 Chinese men lost their lives. Okay, well, we're going to have to discuss this now. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much, Professor Farragher, for joining us today and helping us get to the bottom of who's to blame for the Chinese massacre of 1871. My pleasure. Thank you, Rebecca. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Alarmist. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Alarmy. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hello, everyone, um, and hello, Amanda. You always, you never say hello to me. Just well, because one time I did say hello to you, and you said I spoiled it. <laughs> I'd have to go back. The big to the, surprise. I'd, I'd have to Fact go checker back Chris is here. The archives. <laughs> I don't believe you. That does, just doesn't seem like it's of my character. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> so, I mean, how about all of that information coming from Professor Farragher? I mean. I, I was gasping. I was like, uh-huh. <gasps> yeah, that was, I know. Ve- that was very uh, Michael Barbaro of you, where you were like responding in real time as the information was coming out. <laughs> but there were some pretty incredible tidbits that he dropped. Yes, the legacy of And the history of, of Los Angeles. I know. Oh, yes. 
Fantastic. Yes. I mean, I, I did say to him after we stopped recording, I was like, I'm second generation Californian. And so I need to learn about all this stuff. So I'm definitely going to read his books. And I also real quick, just want us to uh, take a minute because he talked about something really interesting uh, after we stopped recording, but I did catch it on Zoom. So I'm going to just plug that in here real quick, just about um, the connection to the Civil War and Reconstruction. So take a listen to this. In the, in the late 1860s, 18, you know, well, think about what's going on. The Civil War has just ended. We're in Reconstruction. The United States has uh, passed the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery. The 14th Amendment establishing due process of law and equal protection of the laws and birthright citizenship. The 15th Amendment has established uh, uh, voting rights for people regardless of uh, sex or, or, or not, not, not sex, regardless of race or previous condition of servitude. California refused to ratify the 14th Amendment. California ratified the 14th and 15th Amendment in 1959. So, uh, and in the campaign, when, you know, because the campaign was, you know, the, the, uh, the 14th, 15th Amendments had to be ratified by vote of the legislature. And so reading, I, I recently was reading the newspapers for that vote, you know, surrounding that vote. So uh, a newspaper in some Sonoma says it, it, it's, you can't vote for this amendment because if you give black people their rights, that's not a problem. There are not enough black people in California to care about, but it'll extend to the Chinese. And uh, that we cannot tolerate. We can, why can't we tolerate it? Because we cannot give up on the principle, and here, get ready for it, of white supremacy. Okay, we're back. <laughs> I mean, of course, like, in 1959, this this didn't get passed until 1959. That is, I'm really bad at math, but 62 years. I mean, if you're over 60, then you live through that. You know, it's especially so interesting when you think of how California today is seen as this sort of vanguard of progressivism and sort of um, civil rights in certain ways and how, <laughs> how the history of that is just, it, it's sort of more of a modern conception than anything else. Right. I mean, so, it, yeah, the seventies or the late sixties and seventies, like really turned it around, I guess, in, in many ways, but clearly not in enough ways. There's still so much work to be done. Just to remind us and our alarmy, we sent xenophobia to jail and we slapped the local Los Angeles government, which is kind of interesting. But after talking to Professor Farragher, do you are you thinking about changing the verdict? Well, I just loved the legacy of conquest as a a, a contributing factor to yeah. the situation. Um the way that he explained, you know, what he explained about how white supremacy, you know, needed to be above it all, like their need to always have a, to be superior, right? And to have people underneath, right? Which is conquest. Yeah, I mean, he really threw out like a, a he was like firing off keywords that I was just scribbling down. So he said, and these are all amazing to have in our back pocket for future episodes. As we know, this, these concepts come up a lot, but the attitude of colonial superiority, mm. proletarian subservience, mm. 
I know, the legacy of conquest and uh, the tradition of vigilantism, which I think we were all saying wrong that entire episode. (laughs) (laughs) Also, it's like the way he put it, the tradition of vigilantism. Yes. Um, I also want to point out, he mentioned that we kept saying 1971 in the episode. um, And yes, if we said 1971, I apologize. It's it definitely happened in 1871. Oh, no, no, no. But he, did he? No, he said that we we were saying 19, 19 people lynchings. died. Oh. But, or was it right? He was saying it was something like 18 people oh, died. Yes. He oh, said there okay. Were we got the number wrong. The number I see. Wrong. So, so he said it, instead of, it was nine. We kept saying 19 instead of 18. I thought he was talking about the year. But <laughs> no, but sounds like us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I wouldn't put it past us. Um, okay. Apologize. Uh, I, apologies. Uh, it was 18, not 19. Um, there are, in all fairness, there are so many differing like accounts, differing accounts online. And there isn't like a super cohesive like, okay, this is what happened. And mm-hmm. I got to We got to read these books because. I'm so interested in the history of California now. It's such an interesting state. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we growing up in California, our big fourth grade project was all about the missions. Mm. And so we each got assigned a mission and we had to uh, build them in any way we see we saw fit. So, of course, um, I grew up with an older sister who was very talented artistically. So she built mine. (laughs) She would always do (laughs) my artistic projects. I got um, I think mine was called like La Pisma. It was pink, if I remember correctly. But anyway, we learned all about the missions. Uh, I went to Catholic school, I should say. And nothing about, you know, sort of the uh, collateral damage coming from this type of colonialism. Right. Uh, which is I'm just now picking up in my 30s. It's like, yeah. let's just focus on the building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like a history that's more based on um, um, architecture than, you know, actual uh, the human beings involved. Yeah, and I also want to say real quick, uh, I love the term Californio. Californios? It, yeah, which is so interesting to, which now, makes sense. You was know. that was that the people who because it's so there like there's a lot of co- confusion like there's a lot of confusion there because it's like California was part of Mexico, then the Spanish lost the war, lost the war. So first it was Spanish, then it was Mexican, then the people who were living there, what was their identity, and that was they were Californios, which were Mexicans who had lived long enough in California, basically. To I guess it was Hispanic people native to the U.S. And they were probably the Spanish uh, or Mexican. Yeah, I guess it's it's all very confusing. We need we need a class on this. Maybe Professor Farragher could um, just <laughs> well, well if, we, if we do an episode about this, maybe Spanish conquest of California, that could be interesting. Yeah, yeah. That 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 would be great because we yeah. really need to figure this out for ourselves. We live here. These are like <laughs> this is these are the streets we drive on. These are, this is the place that we've like made home. We should know how it came to be, uh, at the very least. Um, so, do we want to change any of of this? Oof! I you know what you know I'm tempted to go with legacy of conquest, but I do you know. 
perhaps, I mean, what are we going to let xenophobia off the hook? They're all connected, right? I mean, I don't know if you want to like, I I don't know. They're they're all connected. So I'm sure at some point the legacy of conquest, we can nail it. Yeah. Uh, But I'm down if you want to tweak the language tweak xenophobia to legacy of conquest like i think that's cool but we could also just leave it and now we have that term in our back pocket it's yeah. totally up to you well there was something i mean to me there's a bit of a and i don't know if this is just a semantic or what but there's a bit of a difference between xenophobia and this sort of superiority or, or white supremacy or legacy of conquest where there's an inherent sort of power dynamic at play um, as opposed to sort of more of a fear-based uh, element. Like, I, I think the modern concept of, you know, um, immigration in general is more fear-based. They're taking our stuff, but where they're taking our jobs, et cetera. But I think back then, the, the, the legacy of conquest is sort of more of an overriding factor where it's like, um, the Anglos are here, the Anglos are in charge, the Anglos are the powerful ones. And um, this sort of blatant disregard for this sort of upstart, if you will, community of Chinese people mm. in Los Angeles, um, is, it sort of feels like it's it's a part of that, mm-hmm. that, that sort of in, inherent sort of power dynamic, as opposed mm. to a fear, more of a fear-based right. Sort of yeah, it's dynamic. just like how how they do things. It's just how we roll, guys. Um, also, yeah. lack of women. We should have put that up on the board. <laughs> lack of women in in, uh, in the West. Yeah. And yeah. While he was telling us all about these, like, uh, just like what it was like, I'm like, God, it, just a few women like helping run a few of the the places would have really helped. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, it's interesting uh, to think about like a lot of these. Areas at the time were, yeah, all guys. No and, diversifying. No, it was you like, know? And, and he, he used a term like a lot of them were basically just like mining communities. So it was basically yeah. like everyone had to work in these things. And then there were these just these sort of like brothels and different vices like gambling and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was, a, I would say maybe bro culture you could throw up there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I here's what I think. I think I'm going to keep xenophobia. Well, no, I'm going to change it to the legacy of conquest because I think it is more specific, like you said, Chris. And I'm going to also change the slap. Uh, I know we had said the local government, but I think I'm going to change it to the police, the six, or I'm sorry, the seven policemen. I'm sorry. We got that wrong too. Not six, seven. <laughs> <laughs> um, the seven policemen that just didn't de-escalate the situation. And I think that that was a contributing factor to the tradition of vigilantism. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like yeah. the, when he said that they deputized the people who were coming in and literally firing into innocent, you know, people's homes in Chinatown, that, uh, you know, that, that, con- that came from that group of people, the, the, the police who were supposed to make sure everyone was safe. Yeah. Right. But instead yeah. they didn't. I think with, I think with our new information that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. I'm going to call it the seven policemen. You're getting the big slap. Legacy of conquest. You're going to the alarmist jail. 
Well, I mean, we couldn't have done it without Professor Farragher. Thank you so much for uh, coming on to speak to us uh, for this episode. And, you know, we couldn't have done it without ourselves, with, with, <laughs> without each other as well. Oh, thanks to both of you. Hey, thanks. Okay, well, tune in next week. We're covering the Ramstein Air Show disaster. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.